Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is about your knuckles. Scientists have disagreed for like a century over why cracking your knuckles makes noise. And they mostly talk about bubbles. Uh, Maybe they're saying there's some low pressure somewhere and it's been a lot of argument. But in 2015, a new paper showed that the bubbles don't fully implode. Instead, they persist in your joints for 20 minutes after you crack them, which says it's not the collapse of the bubble that makes the noise, but it's the forming of the bubble. But it wasn't clear how a bubble's debut could make those sounds that are audible across a room. So engineers from Stanford and a French university whose name I will badly mispronounce, even though I live in Canada, called E. Cole or something, set out to solve the mystery. And they found out that that weird sound your knuckles make may come from bubbles that collapse only partially. And they actually did a mathematical simulation of a partial bubble collapse to explain the dominant frequency and volume. Why the heck do you need to know this? Well, you probably shouldn't crack your knuckles, but we still don't even know if that's really bad for you. But this is the level of complexity that's going on in our biology. And if someone says that can't happen, therefore it didn't happen, and something did happen in your biology, well, here's the deal. We only know about maybe 2% of what's really going on in there. Maybe it's 5%. I don't know, but we're constantly learning more. And if it takes mathematicians in France and Stanford to figure out how we crack our knuckles, when we get to things like cancer, mitochondrial function, and living to 180, there's some room for improvement. And speaking of things like cancer and mitochondrial function, today we're going to be talking about some really cool stuff, specifically in those areas. We're going to talk with Dr. Chris Smith, who's a neurosurgeon at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix. And Barrow is the world's largest neurological disease treatment and research institution and is ranked as one of the best neurosurgical training centers in the U.S. And Dr. Chris Smith obtained a medical degree in Nevada, top of his class, and is a full-on radio neurosurgeon and actually studied at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, where my wife studied. So Dr. Smith has done more than 10,000 surgeries and is director of the Gamma Knife and Cyber Knife Radio Surgery Program for about 20 years. In other words, he's a surgical, neurosurgical badass. But what's interesting is that now he's paying a lot of attention to ketogenic diets and what happens even with epilepsy and brain cancer and things like that. So Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. All right. I got to just ask you. Surgeons are, and I'm going to just have to say this, uh, surgeons are the most arrogant (laughs) of all the professions in medicine. Maybe not you personally, but on average, right? And you're the top of your class. Uh, So it's hardest for surgeons to say, I'm going to look at these weird nutritional approaches that weren't a part of my training in medical school. And here you are, like top of your field, doing surgery, saying, hey, maybe I can add this stuff in. I want to know what made you decide to even look, because this is unusual. Well, it's a long story, and I, I agree. And my, I have a son who's a third-year medical student, and he actually hated his surgical rotation because of the arrogance of the surgeons. And, and I'm proud of that, that I didn't raise him that way. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very, very proud that, uh, that my director here, the, Dr. Robert Spetzler, one of the most famous neurosurgeons ever, taught us in our institution that we couldn't be arrogant. It wasn't right to look down on the, on the quote, little people of the hospital. So it's a, a culture that's changed things here, which I'm very proud of at the, at the Barrow. Um, also, why did I get interested? My wife is a dietitian, 
And honestly, she was taking all these CME courses um, at night. I'd go home late for dinner and she'd have some podcast on or some online course. And I started listening and going, is that true? Is that real? And I started like looking at references and things and it kind of opened my mind a little bit. And uh, and that was, so I give her great credit for that. I also want to give a shout out to my my daughter, Rachel, who's an actress and, and uh, has gone to your you know, Bulletproof Cafe in Santa Monica, taken us there and seen your Bulletproof Labs and was really interested in that. Yeah, Rachel's uh, Rachel's a friend. I follow her on Instagram. Uh, Rachel Brooksmith uh, is, is how she she goes. And uh, I chatted with her and she actually said, you got to talk to my dad. I'm like, really? Who's your dad? And, and it turns out, you know, there aren't just aren't a lot of top surgeons who are on ketogenic diets and things like that. So I was like, this is great. So that was the, how we got connected. That's great. Yeah. She she has this whole disruptive movement of disruptiveapparel.com. I got a plug for that where she it's be disruptive for positive change. So she's been quite influential and, and, and got me kind of interested in that whole you know, fitness era. I've been a real fitness nut my whole life, honestly, and I've run marathons and done things. And one of our residents, our chief resident this year, for Mike Danasco, he's a he's a legend here because he's he's an ultra marathoner on top of being a neurosurgeon. He ran the Monument Valley, sixty two mile. You know, it's like a, a fifty mile race, something like that. And he won the race. I call him the king of the cult of keto here at the Barrow because he started many of us, including me and some of my partners on the ketogenic diet because of his tremendous athletic uh, performances that he's done being keto adapted. So he ran this race in Monument Valley on the border of Arizona and Utah. And not only did he you know, run the race all on ketones, but he, you know, as an amateur athlete, as a, as a real training neurosurgeon with very little time, he managed to win this race and they accused him of cheating by missing a lap. He had to pull out his Garmin watch and show, <laughs> show them the route that he completed the whole thing. And they said, we're sorry. And, and he actually, you know, won it, uh, when the race against some very, wow. very tough competition. So, so he, and, you know, my older my son is in medical school. We started talking about all these adaptations of being ketogenically adapted for exercise and, for me, I, I ride my bike to work a lot. I run to work sometimes when I'm doing marathon training, and that's a that's a 13 mile one way thing. And so I'm really interested in you know trying to improve my athletic performance. And then I've known about the ketogenic diet for intractable epilepsy for some time. I, I'm the I'm the epilepsy surgeon. I'm the director of our Stereotactic and, and uh, Epilepsy Surgery Fellowship here, and so I am the the primary epilepsy surgeon. And many times will put a patient on a ketogenic diet to control their seizures. And so it just kind of got me interested in, wow, maybe there's more to this ketogenic thing than only a seizure control. So anyway, there's a long, long background of how I got really into this. I just want to say thanks for for being aware of what you're doing. My mom has had epilepsy. Basically, she started having seizures when she was pregnant with me. And growing up, had epilepsy, was on huge doses of epilepsy medicine, and had brain surgery about 20 years ago at Stanford for epilepsy that left her without the seizures, but probably a lot worse off neurologically. And the physicians never mentioned nutrition, food, ketogenics, anything like that. Of course, now she's on her Bulletproof Coffee, and she is ketogenic. Uh, But uh, that was 20 years ago. But just the, the fact that you're incorporating that and surgery for people with really severe problems like that, it's its life-changing stuff. And it's life-changing even if you don't have epilepsy. And that's a, a, one of the reasons I want to have you on the show. Right. You're doing this as an athlete <laughs> <laughs> and as a neurosurgeon. Right. So it's it's been a, been a fun uh, thing. I've really you know done it for about a year now, uh, really being on it. We had one of our researchers, our PhD researchers, uh, for brain tumors, her name is Adrian Sheck. She gets quoted a lot in a lot of the publications on this. She's been trying to talk me into this for at least probably five to ten years. And I and I, you know, as a typical arrogant surgeon before, I was thinking, what can a diet do? I mean, we're treating brain cancer. This glioblastoma is the toughest thing. I honestly think this is not an exaggeration. There's no bigger challenge in medicine than treatment of, of glioblastoma, the primary brain cancer, because it literally eats the brain from the inside out. You can't take out the tumor without taking out part of the brain with it. And a real personal story, my own father had a glioblastoma. And so in my experience of treating my own father was very instrumental in kind of helping me see the light, so to speak, and that, you know, the treatments that we do for people, we try to treat the cancer, treat the tumor. But at the same time, if they're their quality of life after treatment is not worth living, then what have we done for that person, right? And so 
my dad actually came down and was enrolled in a clinical trial that I actually wrote. Um, it was a very aggressive trial. And, and on a side note, um, I sponsored this DBAX race against cancer. We just did it this last weekend where we, I actually run with my patients um, at this five, wow. 5K race. And we just did this last Saturday morning. And it was really a thrill for me. And I have a, a patient of mine who's a four, nearly a 14-year survivor now of a glioblastoma. She was on the same research protocol that my father was. She's the only person living still from that trial. One out of 30 people on the trial is still alive. And that's a, it's a real rare thing to have someone, you know, really beat that uh, disease. And she actually beat her previous year's time by, by about three minutes. So it's pretty cool that she's, and she's now becoming ketogenic. We've talked about it and trying to prevent her from ever, you know, having a recurrence. So there's, there's lots of, lots of things that we're, we're trying to do, but it's still, you know, these one out of 30, uh, you know, long-term survivors, and then even those that do survive, if they've had very aggressive, you know, radiation and chemotherapy treatments and a lot of toxicity from the treatment, then I'm, I'm wondering, did we really help them at all? And we're really trying to learn through molecular profiling analysis and a lot of really epigenetic changes and things about how to still beat the cancer, but not you know, beat the patient's brain in the process. And I really think the ketogenic diet is a, is going to be, or hopefully is that uh, part of that magic bullet, the holy grail of treating people with this disease, that we can do things that are less toxic, uh, but also effective in battling the disease. For people listening, you might say, why do I care about glioblastoma? But not only is it the most common brain cancer, the glial cells in your brain and now you're a neurosurgeon and I'm a biohacker. So if I get my percentages wrong, correct me. But they're roughly what, half the cells in the brain, the glial cells, they're smaller than your neurons, a lot smaller, but they're the ones responsible for cleaning up the brain, for pruning synaptic connections. And they're basically the immune system in the brain. Correct. There are actually many, many more glial cells than there are neurons in the brain. And, and, the, and the glial cells are the, all the support cells and Unfortunately, we don't get any new neurons after we're about 25 or so, um, and but we get a lot of turnover of glial cells. So the fact that they replicate and divide and, and are susceptible to forming cancers is and susceptible to toxic change and all of that, that's, uh, they're very vital. We're learning more and more about them, about all of the ability to support synaptic densities and supporting growth and memory change. And uh, so... Again, I'm getting off on many tangents because it's hard to keep focused. There are so many things that have to do with it. So I, I treat three different diseases with the ketogenic diet in my practice. One of them is just purely obesity-related. It's called pseudotumor cerebri, a disease of young women. And it's not that they want to be obese. It's not like they haven't tried to have diets. They've, uh, they've tried things that just haven't worked. And so we're initiating a study of placing these people who've had gastric bypasses, they've had every dietary counsel possible, but they still keep this obesity that causes their central venous pressure to be elevated, which causes their intracranial pressure to be elevated, which causes them to have headaches and to go blind. And I have to treat them with shunts, which is terrible. It's a band-aid treatment. What they really need is metabolic therapy. So they lose weight healthily and gradually and get rid of this problem that causes high pressure in their heads. So we're initiating the ketogenic diet to treat them, and I've had a few um, shunt graduates where they've actually lost weight, and I can take out their shunt, and they have life. And I, it was early on. I had a had a patient and her mother who looked very similar to her, obese, you know, and not any fault of her own because of this metabolic syndrome and carbohydrate intolerance, and she had fibromyalgia as well. And and a month later, she comes and literally grabs me in the hospital, gives me a hug, and says, "You have no idea." been on this diet for a month and now I can play with my grandkids. I don't have pain. And that really shocked me. I did not know about the effect of the anti-inflammatory response of the ketogenic diet before that. So it's really very influential in many different things. I was also diagnosed with fibromyalgia uh, years ago. And there's, there's a pretty common connection with exposure to water damage buildings, which surprisingly in Phoenix, there are more of them than you'd expect. Uh, I grew up in Albuquerque, okay. uh, which is a very similar right. climate. And uh, it's, it's interesting that people get fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a mitochondrial disorder, which is usually triggered by something uh, in, in the environment. And that makes it sort of epigenetic and that raises your risk of cancer as well. Like there's correlative risks there. But what, what's interesting to me, though, is that you're talking about epigenetics a lot. I've had one expert on the show who says you know, cancer is a genetic disease. 
And my reading of the literature, which is not as extensive as yours, says maybe 10% of cancers and maybe 20%. Some percentage are genetic, but it seems like most of them are lifestyle epigenetic things. Where, where do you fall on that spectrum? Like, what's your current belief, given that you've, you've operated on 10,000 people with these kind of things? Uh, you know, it's, it's changing, obviously. I, I was taught in traditional you know, medical school environment that cancer is a genetic disease and, and that it's not one disease. It's hundreds of diseases. And I've actually quote myself in saying that to people, I, I, I hear it. Like a lot of things, we as, as scientists, as physicians, as, uh, as you know, lay people who really study this stuff, I think the natural tendency for us as humans is to want to think, think of things as binary, one or the other, black and white. But really everything is in bell-shaped curves and statistics and probabilities. And there are clearly one spectrum of, of cancer, like pediatric cancers, and there are people that have oncogenes. There are people that clearly have a genetic basis of their of their oncogenesis. However, I'm tending to agree as more and more, you know, as I read more and more about this metabolic uh, theory of cancer, about all the respiratory events and epigenetic cycles that end up developing uh, the risk for radical you know, reactive oxygen species because they're you're very poor at mitochondrial function. You actually ramp up the glycolytic enzymes, and and it's really interesting to me that the number one glioma-producing mutation is an IDH1 mutation. IDH1, isocitrate dehydrogenase, is the enzyme that's that's in the Krebs cycle. And it's I, I don't think that's a coincidence anymore um, that that's related. So it's it's I, I really am learning more and more about it. And I, I just there's a lot of research that needs to be done. I'm interested in not getting a glioblastoma or, frankly, any other kind of cancer. <laughs> Right. <laughs> given, given what you know, right. uh, which is more than me. Uh, in fact, let me ask you this: What do you do to reduce your odds of getting a brain cancer? Right. So I am I am trying to avoid getting Alzheimer's disease. I'm trying to avoid getting any degenerative neural disease, including glioblastoma. And that that means that I am an avid follower of the ketogenic diet. I'm also an avid exerciser. Um, I think um, daily exercise. Uh, clears your mind and helps uh, your health and vitality of your neurons and your glial cells uh, very much. So, uh, you know, those two things and trying to get sleep, although that's really hard in my job, it's one thing I really wish I could do better. Although last night I was operating till 10, almost 11 o'clock at night and then rode my bike home and, you know, all that stuff. But it clears my brain to uh, commute on my, my bike and uh, commute sometimes running. And I, I, I feel so much better on the days that I'm I get my daily exercise fix on the, and on those days that I can't do it. So those those are the things. Obviously, I try to be an avid reader and exercise my brain and, and do all those things to keep everything uh, functional and using, not try to spend too much time just blaring into, you know, looking into an empty tube into the TV space and but really exercise my brain. So all those all those things, I think, are vital in, in promoting a long-term healthy brain life. One of the things that uh, the other surgeon friends of mine uh, have talked about is that quite often, unless it's all elective stuff, uh, you can be doing surgery, like you said, 10 o'clock at night, you're under bright operating room lights. And so you're getting a lot of circadian disruption, not just from being up late, but from being under surgical lighting. Uh, do you find that you know, sleep quality is something that you deal with as well as just getting enough of it uh, just because of your line of work? You know, I really don't know that. I I, uh, I do stare into the operating microscope, which is very bright light, for sometimes six, eight hours at a time. And uh, and sometimes I can cause, obviously, retinal fatigue and like stuff. But I have no trouble falling asleep. I think my quality of sleep is excellent. Maybe it's because I'm just plain exhausted by the time I get home. But it's just I uh, <laughs> I wake up too early. I, I have a, you know, Phoenix, the sun is bright nearly every day. And, and I like that. Uh, I like the sunshine out here, but boy, as soon as there's any hint of light cracking through the window, it wakes me up. Um, so maybe I need to put some block out shades and get better sleep that way. That actually changed my life uh, up in Canada where I live during summer. It's just bright all the time. And until I got really good curtains, uh, my sleep quality wasn't as good as it is now. So I hired the curtain designer person and i said if i can see any light at all you will have failed <laughs> she kind of looked really nervous. She goes, any light i'm like yeah, that's what blackout curtains mean and she's like oh, okay so like they engineered like extra whatever an extra strip at the bottom and on the sides and, and things like that so i have like a sleep cave because if you look at the literature around uh, circadian disruption and what happens to the brain 
it turns out like it does increase cancer risk pretty substantially, like way more than you'd think. It was a, a book called Lights Out by T.S. Wiley, which came out, I think, in 2001. Uh, was she was the first person to put all that literature together and made me start paying attention to the light around me as just part of becoming neurologically more functional. And uh, it's a part of the equation. It's certainly not the only one, but I always worry about doctors who are up late at night looking at these things, especially the shift workers, you know, people who work um, in ERs or nurses and things like that, uh, to the point that some hospitals are now looking at changing the lighting in the hospital so patients heal faster and also so that the staff doesn't just get completely wrecked when they're you know, working nights for a few weeks and then going back to daytime. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, some of our uh, medical professionals actually end up living longer because we start putting in better lighting in hospitals, just more natural spectrum and things like that. But at least you have the sunshine in Phoenix, which is, I think, in your favor on that side. I hope so. So what do you do post a glioblastoma brain surgery? You've got people on a ketogenic diet. What else do you do to speed healing post-surgical? Is that a part of what you talk about or you're more a proceduralist and you kind of go in, get it done, and then uh, the the hospital staff works on the recovery side? Well, you know, it's it's a challenge because I am a proceduralist. I am a, a surgeon, but I, I pride myself in being someone who doesn't just do the surgery and then hand them off to the to the neuro-oncologist or to other people. I, I follow my patients for their entire life and and uh, which drains me, honestly, emotionally, I, I really do get involved. And that's, that's why, like I said, this race against cancer is something that's emotional for me and helpful uh, as far as getting, giving them all something to shoot for. Like, we're going to do this together next year. We're going we're gonna to go. And I, I really try to be an advocate for helping them to get up and move. And you can imagine some of these people have problems with mobility. And, and I, try to, I try to get them to uh, do this lecture all the time in clinic to get to the point where you walk at least a mile a day. And these are people that might have a hemiparesis or might have being a walker. And I say, this is your goal, you know, do this stuff. So I, I really, you know, try to instigate or, you know, or try to promote a sense of well-being by being outside and being active. There's actually a study done that just owning a dog for a patient with a glioblastoma improves their survival time. And that's because probably of two things, emotional kind of healing. There are many people that benefit from a therapy dog, but also just the fact you have to get up, you have to take them out, you have to go take them for a walk, uh, get them to go do their business out on someone else's lawn. And that and that uh, <laughs> that can help them just to be up and about. And it actually was proven in a study to, to improve the survival of a patient with brain cancer. Well, I, I have to plug uh, dachshunds as a, a really awesome affectionate breed. <laughs> I, I know some breeds of dogs, so like I'm pretty sure that breed of dog causes cancer because they're just too neurotic. But a, a good chill dog that makes you take them for a walk, but is uh, it is also going to be just loving and nice is uh, I, I think is just good on many different levels. And, and uh, obviously, I have one of those, so I might be biased. Great. Uh, and and taking your person out for a walk is, is is important. And quite often, if you don't have a dog or something like that having an appointment with a friend, just anything that's going to make it so at the last minute while someone's recovering, or even if they're just working on getting stronger, just having someone or something to to hold you accountable so you won't at the last minute say, you know, it was easier to just watch more Netflix than it was to go for a walk. I, I think that that's something that all of us could benefit from, whether or not we're post-surgical. I agree. You've You've talked a little bit about using a ketogenic diet and being in ketosis before surgery, and you found that it might be able to help you avoid steroids post-op. And steroids are normally used to just quell inflammation, but they come with a big downside in that you can gain weight and they can mess up your metabolism. So what's going on with post-op ketosis? Or sorry, pre-op ketosis. Well, I, I wish I could, you know, give you some actual hard data about, you know, how many patients have done this and, you know, what's the effect. And really at this point, it's just a bunch of anecdotal responses and it's, I haven't quantified it, but it's certainly something I want to do and I'm trying to do. Uh, we have about 20 patients actively right now with, you know, in the midst of some phase of treatment of glioblastoma on a ketogenic diet. And we're finding, you know, different responses. Those that that I find that really adopted, I really do believe there is an anti-inflammatory effect. And the trouble with the steroids, the cortisol-based drugs, the dexamethasone is the one that's most commonly used in neurosurgery. It's a very powerful anti-inflammatory steroid, but it comes with all kinds of baggage. And I have been against this drug for years, well before I, I knew of 
of the ketogenic diet. And that's be, I think it's the most overused drug. And the, the problems and complications of corticosteroids are they, number one, after this, they kick you out of ketosis. The cortisol is the hormone that makes you burn your own muscle and, and with gluconeogenesis, turn it into sugar, and, and it makes your body crave sugar. It makes your body's blood sugar level go way up. Anyone who's even a borderline diabetic, whether blood sugar shoot up from you know, 150 to 300 plus when they're taking a high-dose corticosteroid. It makes you gain fat in all the wrong places. Anyone who's known anyone with Cushing's disease, they get a moon face, they get a fat tummy, they get skinny legs, they get uh, thin skin that bruises easily and is fragile. It's everything bad that happens to your body and happens with the corticosteroids. So if, and I, I say that if with a very positive, hopeful if, the ketogenic diet can help people reverse that and not need to be on steroids, it's a huge plus. So we have a protocol where we're implanting this, this focal delivery radiation seed device, uh, device directly into the tumor bed after we resect it. And again, there's a, there's a balance between using radiation to kill tumors that have already occurred versus the idea of preventing uh, tumors from happening. But anyway, as we implant these, usually it would cause a big response. I've had a few patients that have been on the ketogenic diet with these seeds in place and literally had no inflammation, no swelling at all afterwards. And I think that's impressive, but it's a very small number, just a few anecdotes, and we'll really have to quantify it to make sure that that's reportable data. Well, I would ask you to gather blood ketone markers pre and post-surgery. I have a sneaking suspicion that you don't need to be in massive ketosis. My guess is the number is 0.5 right. uh, on, on a blood stick. And there's a couple studies that, that show when you can get to 0.38 and 0.48, uh, that that is what changes levels of CCK and ghrelin, which are two hormones that are are useful for controlling hunger, but but are basically upstream hormones for a lot of other things that happen in the brain. And I've I've found I can get to that level even if I have carbs, if I'm using uh, the oil that we make. Mm -hmm. And that's because it converts directly to ketones. But there's a, a I'm just going to say a cult of people out there who are sort of like comparing my ketone readings are higher than yours. Right. And in in my metabolic mind, I'm like, well. Would we compare? Look, my blood sugar is higher than yours. Look at me. Right. <laughs> if you're good at if you're good at burning ketones, your levels should be kind of low. And if you're good at burning sugar, your levels should be kind of low. So it, it seems like there must be a Goldilocks number for people who you, you must be at this level uh, in order to get the benefits before surgery or before any major trauma. Maybe even before going out on a, a professional football field in case you get hit in the head. Like, like if this is protective. We need to know the minimum protective level to target instead of saying, I want a ketone level of 12, you know, and maybe there's some metabolic dysregulation if you're doing that as well. Any, any thoughts or experience on that? Yeah. So it's interesting when we were first becoming, you know, into this ketone, we have a little breathalyzer and, and we'd go up at a family vacation. We'd kind of go out and compete with each other. Who could blow the highest ketone number today? Right. And it was really kind of laughable because it's really not about that. If you have a high number, it's probably because you're, you're early on in the experience and you're <laughs> inefficient at utilizing the ketones and, exactly. you know, and so it's what happens when people try to use urine sticks to measure at first, it's like, Oh, it'll turn purple. You got massive ketones. But after a while, it's like, wait, what happened? I'm doing the diet even better. It's like, that's because your body actually saves them. You're burning them now. You're utilizing them for fuel. So, that's why urine urine sticks are not don't have any efficacy or any applicability after a few weeks. So, so yes, I think there's a there's a sweet spot, a magic number that just shows yes, you're in general nutritional ketosis, and a, I think a 0.5 is is probably very accurate, just to, as a goal. And it is different, you know the the idea of being in nutritional ketosis for health and, and doing athletic performance and things like that is probably a different ball game than using it as a ketogenic metabolic therapeutic treatment of cancer. And, uh, and I, I don't know that for sure, but that's my intuition that it's better to, to really be a little more strict and keep the carbs down to probably under 20 grams and that type of thing to really not bounce in and out. And having, try this diet on many people and, and seeing the roadblocks that happen. There's There are many things that get in the way. These people have usually some cognitive impairment or cognitive dissonance at least, and it's new in their lives. They can be older. The old adage of can't teach an old dog new tricks is very true. And and it's it, there are many, many challenges, roadblocks to get people in this and and to staying and staying ketotic. I had one patient who I thought was doing really well on it, 
he had this anti-inflammatory response. And then all of a sudden the family decided, well, he's not getting all these nutrients and vitamin C. So they started juicing and, and having <laughs> all kinds of sugar. And, and then sure enough, the next scan was inflammatory and just had swelling. He didn't have another operation. And again, I don't know for sure in that patient, if that would have happened anyway, I really don't know that, but I found it at least an interesting anecdote that he had been doing really well when he was on it and then crashed kind of with something that people thought was healthy and thought was good for them. And, and, and just sugar and juice is just not good for us. It's tough with juicing too, because I, I found there's about four classes of nature derived toxins that cause inflammation in, in different people in different ways. And depending on what they're juicing, <laughs> you could be getting a histamine effect. If the vegetables aren't particularly good, excess histamine equals inflammation. You could be getting oxalic acid from a lot of raw kale and collard and things like that. And that can be inflammatory in certain people. In fact, there's people looking at autism in that. And then you've got the, the plant lectins, which are part of the bulletproof diet, right. where if they're juicing bell peppers and the person's sensitive to nightshades, like that's going to be a game over uh, kind of scenario for someone who's dealing with chronic inflammation in their brain. Uh, and not to mention, you you could just have sugars and uh, also mycotoxins are also implicated in glioblastoma specifically, where if you're eating these, well, th those look like they're pretty fresh and all these. So these are all like mother nature derived. And then you've got all the man-made toxins and mercury and things like that. All of them are like a little, they're, they're all problems. Right. And for some people, they're bigger than others. But if you take someone who's already on the edge and then you stack some of these up and you don't know which ones make them weak, it seems to me like all of those are things you should watch out for when you're trying to recover uh, from a major procedure, whether it's brain or some other procedure. Do you buy that line of thinking? I mean, I, I, please disagree if, if, if there's something that, that, that doesn't match your experience. Right. Well, honestly, it's just a foreign field to me. And I think that that's what's tough. You know, we've, as a traditional medical doctor, you, you kind of have this cynicism about, oh, toxins and things like that, right. you know, and just like, oh, detoxify and all these Zen retreat places and things like that. And then, <laughs> and then you kind of, with a little bit more open mind, think, well, maybe these things are popular because they do help people in some way. And there, there is a, something to it. So I've, I've tried to learn to have a, a bit more of an open mind about things, but I will just admit ignorance to it. I just really don't know. I appreciate your open-mindedness on that. And and it's it's tough. Anytime we have something that, that could be caused by 10 different things, our, our natural, uh, you're training in medical school, just our natural, any, any scientist is like, well, I, I want to find the single variable. But when you're dealing with you know, four variables and each is contributing a small percent, it is really hard for our human brains to, to put together those things, which is why we have all these statistical techniques and machine learning and conjoint analysis and all these these things that that we do. But it's going to be really tough. And, and my approach evolved over time to get rid of, you know, the, the chronic fatigue and the Lyme disease and the arthritis and all this stuff that I was I was dealing with, just the brain fog was I don't necessarily have to know which one, but I'm going to find the most likely offenders and just minimize them as much as I can. And the results have been pretty good. But I don't know to this day, I can tell you, this one thing right. was the one thing that was causing a problem. I, I think it was a systems problem. Uh, right. I don't know how to teach that, though. Right. And that's that's one of the problems in, in medicine. And you touched on it very well. And I've actually stood up in conferences and we had a brain tumor symposium just a couple of months ago. And I I gave a, a speech about how I'm trying to incorporate the ketogenic diet and these things called tumor treatment fields. These are non-toxic therapies to, to help uh, patients because... Our scientific method has has just not done well with glioblastoma, and we look at all of these, you know, drug company sponsored trials. We and I'm involved in patients with what's called a phase zero slash two trial, where these are all in recurrent disease, and there's been many many downstream, you know, modified genetic aberrations that have occurred, and multiple different pathways, um, and this heterogeneity of the of the glioblastoma is a huge problem. And so what we do is we will actually give a patient a drug before they have surgery. Then we'll, we'll take the tumor out, see if it bound to the tumor, and see if we're, it's a smarter way to do a trial. And then if there's efficacy of that, if the, if the molecule adheres and is showing signs of causing apoptosis or death of the cancer cell, then we'll say, well, that's a good drug for that patient. But unfortunately, it's treating one downstream effect at a time. What's wrong with all these therapies that try one downstream effect at a time is there's 10 others or at least three or four others that are not being treated. And so you've, you, it's like, my analogy is it's like an avalanche and it, the snowball happened. If you got at the very beginning, before it 
it escalated in this massive, you know, downward force spreading out over an entire canyon or, or mountainside, then maybe you could have done something. But treating one little spot and protecting one house or one tree from the avalanche where the rest of it just goes on and destroys everything is not going to be helpful. So I, I think that we need to have a much more global look at many, many pathways at once or Again, if this metabolic therapy of cancer is really true and we're treating all these epigenetic effects and preventing these downstream effects of epigenetic events, then, then I think that's possibly much more likely to, to treat these people. What I'm struggling with now mostly is that we're dealing with patients who've already had cancer develop. I think ketogenic diet and being nutritional ketosis, living a healthy lifestyle can prevent disease better than it can probably treat it after the fact. So I'm struggling with treating things after it's happened. And there are all kinds of genetic you know, problems and modifiers that have, that have been modulated and genes that are turned on. And I, I've had so much experience with patients that initially did well and then have a recurrence. And then after it recurs, it's terrible. I had, I'll just touch briefly on an experiment we did. So uh, my oldest son actually helped me develop what's called a gamma knife radiation biologic dosimeter. And Adrian Sheck helped me with this research. And what you could do is take cells out of you know, a patient. We remove their tumor, culture the cells out on a, on a little cassette. We put that cassette of growing cells from their human you know, glioblastoma tumor, put it inside a gamma knife device in a cassette. Within the high-dose field, in the first occurrence, every single cell died. And it was just you know, said, yep, very clear zone. There's a difference in the size of the field of, of dose response curve in, in different tumors to some degree. But in general, every, every cell we ever studied, every patient, they all responded. The same patient, though, after having been treated with uh, radiation and, and temozolomide, the most common chemotherapy for glioblastoma, the patient's tumor recurs, you know, nine months or a year later. You take those cells out, put them in the same exact cassette, grow them the same way, put them in the gamma nephtosimeter, there are cells, multiple colonies growing even within the high dose field. So you've got, you've had the development of radiation resistance. And so that's what I really think wow. is interesting is trying to figure out what made those cells resistant. What, how was that uh, selected for and, and how can we possibly prevent that from happening? And it turns out there may be some of these epigenetic modifiers of the ketogenic diet that bestows a uh, again, a radiation sensitivity rather than a radiation resistance. But again, these are things that really need to be better studied. But that was that that experiment was very powerful to me. How when we're treating recurrent disease, we're treating a very very different disease than the initial. It's really interesting. I've been reading the uh, the autobiography of Candace Pert, and this is a, a woman who, starting in the '60s, really discovered the opiate receptor in our brains. So she's a, a neuro uh, a neuroscientist just kind of a hard science person. And throughout uh, the course of her career, she came to the conclusion that, well, our immune system is trainable by external things and cites studies uh, in, in her book about this, where uh, she basically says that the immune system and the nervous system are a continuous spectrum and that they're, they're tied together in a certain way. And that uh, once you start looking at the fact that you can train the immune system consciously uh, to, to behave in certain ways, uh, for instance, they would expose dogs to an immune suppressive drug uh, while giving them uh, like saccharin or something, some strong flavor. And then after a while, they could stop doing the immunosuppressive drug and just give saccharin and the immune system would somehow magically know what was going on and it would have the same immune suppression just from the flavor uh, that that the dogs got so like this association is happening in our bodies and and so there's a lot of like learning of the system that i think we're just starting to tease out and it's my great hope that this whole biohacking quantified self just getting data from millions of people uh, from what's going on in our gut bacteria uh, what's going on uh, in our mitochondria what's going on in our cells we're going to start seeing these incredible patterns that point out something happening that was just invisible before we had the ability to gather just ridiculous amounts of fine grained data and throw it into this big correlation engines. And I think it's happening just over the next couple of years because the data collection is just barely good enough and the data analysis is just good enough. And I, I'm hopeful it changes your field pretty dramatically. So you can go into someone and say, this is precisely uh, the combination of things that's causing problems given your genes and given where you live and all this other stuff. And I, I've never been more hopeful in my life. And 
I don't know if you share that optimism, do you? No, I, I do. And that, that's what I, I'm naturally a very optimistic person. In fact, I've been accused in our department of being the eternal optimist that, you know, could, you know, it takes that optimism to, to face the same terrible tumor over and over again every day and think, yep, this time we're going to win. I do think we know more than we've ever known before, but I, I think there's a little bit of of medical and scientific blindness that we have to overcome to allow these kinds of ideas to infiltrate uh, general medicine. And that's, you know, someday I think I'll write another book about, you know, how to, how to incorporate general and, you know, medical knowledge into a more holistic approach and more uh, globally open approach uh, to medicine. So it's, it's refreshing to hear a, a, a very well-established brain surgeon talk about these things. Um, do you, I mean, you mentioned you're already sort of labeled as the optimist. Do you get a lot of pushback when you talk about ketones and surgery uh, from others in your field? Or has this kind of crossed over to the point that at least it might have enough credibility that a, a quote, real scientist doctor can take a look at it without being laughed out of the medical conference? I think it's kind of halfway in between. I, I think there are people that their initial response is cynicism. They just think like, again, like I was, what can a diet yeah. do? Right. Uh, but, but then again, when I was giving this, this talk at this last barrel brain tumor symposium just a couple months ago, uh, and I, I mentioned that I really wanted to talk about this and he goes, Oh yeah, you're going to talk about ketogenic metabolic therapy. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, this is something that is getting more credibility and more, more knowledge. And, uh, when I spoke at this a conference in Baltimore, the Tripping Over the Truth conference, there were quite a few regular practicing medical oncologists that were on the same panel that I was that were kind of incorporating this into their practice. So I, I think it's it's getting there. I think it's probably just a foot in the door. The door's still pretty closed, but there's a foot in the door that's opening it up. And I, I'm guessing you've come across Dominic D'Agostino's work. He, he was one of the first Absolutely. one of the first hundred guests on Bulletproof Radio, and, and we're approaching about 500 interviews at this point. Uh, he's been one of those very loud voices, uh, and that's a compliment when I say loud, not not in a negative way, but just in a in an impactful way on uh, just saying, hey, like like you can do stuff with oxygen and ketones and all. And I'm I am so inspired that in what the four years or so, five years, however long it's been that I've, I've been doing the show, that message has percolated throughout medicine way faster than it would have even ten years ago. So it, it feels like the speed of of acceptance of new thinking of the medical field is accelerating in a way it never has before. Uh, but I'm an outsider. Are you seeing that as an insider as well? Yes, to some degree. I, I think there's some traditionalists that that have a hard time adapting, but they're with the speed of information processing and the availability of everything over the internet and over you know things going viral and information is just just literally at your fingertips every second on your smartphone. You can look up stuff, and I, I'm just amazed at my uh, my you know I have a son and a nephew are both in medical school right now at the University of Arizona, and I they were helping me write a paper. And just to do that was fascinating. I was sitting at my desk at home and they're both on their phones and just looking stuff up. I'd say, my gosh, this would have taken me hours and hours of going to the library and getting up references. And, you know, the time it takes to publish a paper, it's, it's knowledge is almost instantaneously accessible and available now. So when something is really true and gets out there, it it's, happens fast. Uh, I, I just I just think if, as long as we don't suppress it and ignore it and people are honest in their thinking, they will find these things out quickly. Well, I'm uh, I'm equally hopeful. I still remember at the very beginning of my academics using microfish, where you'd want to find something, you find a reference, and you walk around and find a sheet of plastic and put it in a machine. And right. you know, people under 35 will, will hear that and go, "Are you kidding? Like that's worse than a fax machine." <laughs> it's way and, worse. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I couldn't have written uh, Headstrong, uh, my my last book, and I mean, this thing had thousands of references behind it. And I couldn't have even found those references in the amount of time it took me to write the book, much less write the book without all this stuff. So I'm, I, I just feel like, like, like the rate of change, not just in medicine, but in, in nutrition uh, and in, in every realm of, of understanding our biology, understanding animals, understanding the environment, all of that is just faster and better than it's ever been, which makes me really hopeful for, for all of us uh, across pretty much every domain we can think of. So I, I'm glad you're seeing some of those changes as well. 
Well, it is interesting. I think about half of our department of, of neurosurgeons are actually on the ketogenic diet personally, which is really wow. pretty amazing. And in the hospital itself, this was a huge thing. You know, hospital food is famous for being bad. But um, our, I, look, I walk around and see all the vending machines full of just sugar and poison, basically, uh, for people. And this is what you get in a hospital, right? And so we've had Inskate, so I'll give a shout out to my, my nurse practitioner who's on the on the wards uh, and listens to me talk to patients about this every day. We just finished rounds earlier this morning talking about ketogenic diet to the new patient I just operated on yesterday. And and she's instigated, actually, you can order it now as a click on the on the order sheet and power plan, a ketogenic diet, the diet oh, wow. dietitians can do. And I'm not saying they've perfected it yet. It doesn't look super flavorful and uh, not like the things that my wife and I love to cook together at nights, uh, uh, but, but it's getting there. We're actually able to order a ketogenic diet on the hospital menu here at St. Joseph's Hospital. Wow. Th- that is really unusual and groundbreaking. And I, I look back to when I first lost weight on a ketogenic diet. This was in the, the mid nineties because I, I, had a hundred pounds of fat I was trying to lose. Talk about metabolic dysregulation, right? And exercise and low calorie stuff just didn't work. And I, I did lose 50 of my hundred pounds in about three months when I did Atkins diet. But what Atkins didn't have right was the type of fat required to put you in ketosis because some kinds of fat are inflammatory. And he didn't have a problem with any of the the artificial sweeteners. And some of the things like like MSG and NutraSweet have effects in the brain. Right. And so I, I'm curious, do you know, does your ketogenic diet, does it incorporate good fats versus bad fats? And does it incorporate artificial sweeteners? No, unfortunately, it's there's work to be done. And there, <laughs> there's there's a uh, there's a supplement, you know, you could have ordered like for an epilepsy patient, you can order KetoCal, which is available. But unfortunately, it uses like safflower or soybean oil as its main oil of fat, which is obviously not good. And, you know, so the differences in, you know, the macros versus the, the quality of the fats. And right, so we're working on it. But it's it's like changing the course of the Titanic. These things have been available for years and years. And to switch that to a real more modern view and more educated view on which fats to use has been a challenge. Well, I'm still incredibly excited to hear a hospital doing that. And it's, it, it's fantastic. Now, uh, Dr. Smith, uh, we're coming up on the end of the interview and I've asked this question on every interview, except this one. I forgot. <laughs> so I'm not going to forget this time. <laughs> okay. And the question is, if someone came to you tomorrow and, and said, look, I don't perform better at everything I do as a human being. Uh, just based on your whole life experience, what are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have for that person? Number one is to be open-minded and and keep keeping yourself flexible met, uh, mentally, right? So I, I really believe that. I, I, I give a shout out to a, a great book that I read, uh, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. It's about how we think and how we change. And and if it weren't for reading that and, and some influence of my, my son about really opening up and not being dogmatic in our thinking, being flexible in our thinking. I think allowing your brain to contemplate many things in different ways helps you to be alive and free and see things openly instead of so closed and cynical. I I, I think that helps us. Number two is to get out and just enjoy outdoor sunshine and and get out and exercise. I, I really think mental clarity. I really couldn't survive my job if it weren't for getting my dopamine levels up and getting, getting my, uh, my daily, you know, fix of, of endorphins. I, I really think getting out there and, and changing your commute from sitting in a car and listening to, to, you know, walking or running or riding your bike or getting something outside and, and just change your life. So that becomes a, a daily part of the routine. My the mental clarity that I get after I've just kind of cleared my head after a really tough surgery is is incredible to me how that how that can happen and then of course number three we're talking about is the ketogenic diet to me just just embracing fats as fuel has made myself just i'm doing better in every athletic thing that i do i'm doing better at 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 mental things i I really do believe it's helped me to be more uh, more clear, more focused, remember my patient's names, remember multitasking, all that stuff we talk about, avoiding the brain fog. I really think embracing fats as fuel is, is absolutely key. Beautiful. Thanks for answer. And thanks for all of your work uh, at the, the Barrow Brain and Spine Clinic, because you're, 
you are embodying those things you talked about. And it, it's just unusual uh, to find someone who's you know, at the top of their field with a set of training saying, all right, I'm going to branch out and I'm going to keep doing what I'm best at, but I'm going to add these other things in. So I, I appreciate your, uh, your open-mindedness, your willingness to, to just pay attention to these things and to talk about the results uh, because it, it's not without risk uh, in your career to be a, a groundbreaker. And uh, you're, you're definitely doing it. So uh, much respect for that. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. It's been an honor to uh, talk with you and to get to know you. Uh, likewise, your uh, your clinic is barrowbrainandspine.com. Any other places people should go to learn more about the stuff you're doing? You know, I did uh, write a book. It's called It's Not Brain Surgery. Uh, it's more about the healthcare system and frustrations with it. Uh, that, but it'll help. Uh, there's quite a bit of autobiographical things in there about what made me become who I am and, and my, my background. And that's maybe helpful. Uh, we do have on our website, uh, there's an interview that's, that's on that, that has me talking about my approach to treating, uh, treating patients that I, I take very seriously. I think it came off pretty well and I can certainly uh, touch that on our, on our website. So I appreciate it. Beautiful. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, which will take you right to the page where you can leave a review for the show, which helps other people find the show that's worth doing. And while you're at it, check out Dave.Asprey on Instagram because I post all sorts of interesting and weird pictures about the things that a professional biohacker really does, including most recently dipping raw Brussels sprouts in chocolate, not because they taste good or it's good for you, but because I was tricking my kids into trying to eat one of those truffles. So <laughs> if you want a little bit of humor and a little bit of biohacking altogether, Dave.Asprey. Thanks for listening to the show, and I look forward to sharing the next one with you. Great. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.